What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. Welcome to episode 65 of the Lynch with Leader podcast, where we sit down with some of America's greatest leaders and find out how they have led with their faith out in front. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike Lynch, and it is my honor to be on this leadership journey with you, as we're all seeking to be the leaders that we were created to be in the space and the place that God has put us. Well, today wraps up an incredible 2019. We have had so much fun with some absolutely incredible guests this year. You know, I think back on the year and I've learned so much. In fact, I had a good friend here recently challenge me, go back and take your favorite parts of every episode. And it's like, good night. I don't even know where I would start. There's so many amazing thoughts, so many incredible nuggets of wisdom. And man, just a lot of Jesus where people are living out their faith. Unbelievable. Today, we get to wrap up this year with another incredible leader. Not only is he uh, traveling across the country, developing leaders in business and in life, he's an international best-selling author, a keynote leadership speaker, one of the leading leadership experts in the world, according to Global Gurus, Org. Today, you get to hear from a gentleman that I've been chasing for a while, a guy that his name's been brought up by other guests for his influence on them. His name is Mr. Mark Sanborn. Mark is just one of those people that doesn't leave anybody the same after they spend time with him. He is just an absolute incredible person who takes his heart and uses it to inspire and challenge. I know one of his favorite quotes is, nobody can prevent you from choosing to be extraordinary in whatever you do. And he truly is one of those people that is choosing to be extraordinary. He has a brand new book out that you will definitely want to go pick up. All the information is in our show notes for the new book and all that information. But today, I want you to settle in. You may be home on Christmas break. You may be driving to see family or friends. Today is going to be a great way to end 2019. So I want you to saddle up. I want you to grab a seat. Take out a pen or pencil, thumb it into your phone. And I want you to listen in to my time with Mr. Mark Sanborn. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us on Lynch with a Leader today. It is an honor to have you, buddy. Hey, my pleasure to be with you. Thanks for the invite. Well, it has been so fun to watch you from afar. How in the world did you get this leadership bug? You travel now all across the world. Where did that come from? How did all that get started for you? Well, Mike, it probably got started back on the farm when I was in 4-H because I got interested in public speaking at a very young age. And it was my interest in speaking that segued into my interest in leadership. Uh, without going into too many details, I've told the story a lot. Uh, at the age of 10, I entered a, a 4-H speaking contest and did so badly, was so embarrassed that I decided <laughs> I wanted to figure out 
how this public speaking thing worked. And so I, I got interested in it like a lot of uh, young people do in football or debate or academics. That was my passion. And what I learned is, as we all know, uh, being a good speaker doesn't make you a good leader, but it's hard to be a good leader if you're not a good speaker or at least an effective communicator. So I saw such an overlap between the two that when I got into high school and got active in FFA at the time, we called it Future Farmers of America. Yep. Today, we call it FFA because there are a lot more kids that belong that aren't ever going to farm, but they're going to be in some kind of agricultural occupation. And I worked my way through uh, chapter, state, and national leadership in that organization. And really, that's where I began uh, speaking professionally after I got out of that job at the age of 21. It was a one-year uh, term of service. And I, I went into sales and marketing, knowing that someday I wanted to speak and write books and consult with leaders. So there's about uh, 20 years of uh, history in about two minutes. Isn't that crazy? Did all of that experience you think prepare you for what you're doing today? Do you look back at that now and go, man, I wouldn't be who I am if I hadn't have dove headlong into that speaking and wanting to be the best? Unequivocally, I, I obviously didn't know that at the time. You know, we only see those patterns often exactly. as we look backwards. But I will tell you what's interesting is growing up in rural America and being active in my church, I gave a lot of sermons. And when I say sermons, I'm not talking about theologically advanced, hopefully at least basically theologically sound, but I was a novelty act uh, from the age of 10 on. So I do 10, 12, 15 minute little sermonettes in churches, mostly about faith and patriotism. And these churches were so nice to- Cheap uh, entertainment. Churches to love suffer, cheap entertainment. To suffer me, yes. Uh, they may have suffered. I, I didn't suffer. I enjoyed it. But you know, I always tell people, if you want to be good at anything, do it a lot. Mm -hmm. And if you want to be a good speaker, speak a lot. There's plenty of opportunities. Matter of fact, most civic groups, churches, they, they are looking for programming. And if you have a good story, a good message, and the ability to deliver it, you know, you have plenty of opportunity to hone your skills. So as you are here, you are in the middle of your career right now. Most would say you're at the top of your field. How do you keep getting better at it? So you're you're known as a master speaker and a master communicator. What do you do to push yourself to keep that edge that you've had all these years? Well, there's got to be a conscious commitment. My last book, The Potential Principle, we did some research and found that 58% of the people we researched and talked to had a commitment to getting better, but only 30% had a plan. And that to me is a disconnect because if you have a commitment without a plan, what you really have is wishful thinking. Or as I like to say, nothing gets better accidentally with age except wine. Mm. Uh, you know, wine gets better as it ages and it doesn't have to do anything except hang out in the cask. Uh, we, on the other hand, have to take conscious efforts. And the problem is, is that a lot of people really don't have a plan for getting better. Leaders, regrettably, are chief among those that will say they want to get better and they want their team to get better, but they do not know two things. Number one, they don't know where they need to get better. And number two, they don't have a plan. In other words, they don't delegate time for growth and development personally or for coaching, counseling, and mentoring their team members. So I'll say if you want to be an intentional leader, you really need to be intentional about how are you going to grow. And that's not an easy question. You know, you can say, well, I need to be better at social media. Well, that's great. How are you going to do that? Mm. 
lots of resources available from, you know, individuals that are experts and online courses and uh, books. But until you have a plan and you delegate time or designate time regularly, you probably aren't going to make significant improvement. So for me, it's about intentionally getting better. And I know I'm, I'm blathering on here, Mike, but the reason to twofold, one is philosophical. You know, I, I just have a belief that we should all become as best we can be, that that's, uh, you know, a, a commitment that God gave us these opportunities and we shouldn't waste them. <laughs> but at a practical level, there are a lot of speakers out there. There are a lot of young people, and by young, I mean anybody younger than me, you know, because old is anybody older than you, right? <laughs> that's right. Young anybody younger. So you and, and I that's are pushing up. That's pushing up. Age. But uh, there are a lot of great speakers, and uh, I've never won a gold medal. I've never climbed a mountain. I've never overcome uh, any more adversity than the average human being. And there are a lot of people with a lot of great stories. And so if you don't get better, no matter how good you are, you know, going back to my Ohio State days, Woody Hayes, the late great coach, said you're either getting better or you're getting worse. Yep. Status quo is a myth. And I always thought that was kind of hyperbolic, you know, like it was just football pep talk. But what I realized is if you stay the same and your competitors get better, in a relative sense, you're losing ground. You haven't moved, but they've gone on ahead. And so now there's a gap that you have to make up. Do you find as you get older that that drive to get better is getting more that you feel more driven towards that now? Or was that something that you really was more natural when you were younger? Well, that's a really good question. I think it's probably less on the competitive side, more on the philosophical side. I'm just really enjoying the nuances and the art and craft of communication and speaking. You know, when you're younger, I always say you got to do some things just to survive. Yep. And if you spend 20 or 30 years in a job and you're still doing things to survive, you probably haven't spent the last 20 or 30 years well. So I have a lot more latitude now. I can can uh, get by. Uh, and, that, and that, by the way, is what's interesting to me. I hear leaders say, well, you know, there's some things I probably ought to do differently, but I'm only two or three years away from retirement. To which I say, well, I get that for you, but what about the people you lead? Aren't you penalizing them by your unwillingness to change just because you can coast? I mean, face it, a lot of us could coast into those, whatever those retirement years look like. But I think we not only do ourselves a disservice, mm. I think at a very practical level, we do a disservice to the people that we lead who are going, you know, we could probably do a lot better if Mark or Mike got their, you know, uh, got in gear and didn't coast into their golden years. Who, who is somebody who stretches you? Who is somebody you watch? I'll stay in that speaker lane. Who is somebody you watch or you listen to that you go, man, there's somebody that they are honing their craft. They are, every time I listen to them, they challenge me. They help me get better. Is there anybody like that out there for you? Well, I think at a, um, at a delivery and stage level, a guy who happens to be a pastor, I'm sure you're aware, familiar with him, if not friends with him, Erwin Raphael McManus in uh, Mosaic Church, he's just such a uh, creative thinker and has such an amazing stage presence that he always inspires me. And, and what he does, he and I speak in similar circles, but what he does is so different than what I do, which you know is encouraging. There's, a room, there's room for a lot of different styles. Uh, I think that for a guy who just continues to, and he inspires me at an output level, 
It's our friend John Maxwell, you know, uh, yep. formerly of, of your greater Atlanta area, now living somewhere off the Florida coast. John doesn't have to do anything, and that's no secret. John's had so much success and had such a great impact. And yet, to me, and, and I know John, uh, we're not, you know, bestest friends, but but he, I count him as a friend in the business. Watching John, he's just having fun. He loves, he's, he's mm. gregarious, he's an extrovert. And he loves developing people and organizations. And so that's kind of cool to me. You know, he's not out there hustling because he's like <laughs> trying to pay the mortgage, right? Yep. Uh, the guy is wildly successful, but like I guess maybe I said earlier, I think he does it because he truly enjoys it. And that at the end of the day, if you're not leading and enjoying leading, uh, you're not doing it right. I mean, you know, mean leadership's easy, but no. it shouldn't be unpleasant. That's exactly right. What's so funny is I watched you and I've, I've followed your books and your and a lot of the videos you've got out online. You haven't stayed in just one lane of leadership. It wasn't like, okay, I'm going to be the customer service guy or I'm going to be the team building culture guy. You really have gotten, you've really gotten a voice, I would say, in a lot of those different areas. Is that something that was, you just looked at it and said, I'm going to speak into this. Is it something that you said, I feel like God's laid something on my heart that I've got a word for that. How, how did that sort of that broadness of your speaking, how did that come about? I think it was mostly by design. Uh, I am easily bored. I have, you know, philosophical ADD. And it really manifested even sooner than topics. And that is, you know, I started out years ago doing public seminars. Now, at a practical level, when you work for a public seminar promoter, the more topics you do, the more work you get. So that's yeah. just, that was just practical. You know, you'd learn a course. And, and what I, matter of fact, early on, I was asked to do a course on team building that the way it was designed didn't work for me. I mean, it was an okay course, but it wasn't a, a really great course. And I redesigned the course and it became my book, Team Built, Making Teamwork Work. So I didn't want to be the guy that always spoke to any particular industry. I didn't always want to speak to teachers or to realtor, realtors or to doctors, fill in the blank, because I love the diversity of crossing in and out of different uh, professions, different industries and different market spaces. But then as I looked at leadership, what I realized is, is that, you know, leadership is the umbrella over customer service and teamwork and performance and all of these other topics. So as I was writing books, you know, part of it was I didn't want to write the same book twice. So I tried to always pick something that I had developed material in, had some experience in and was speaking on. And then that's what I wrote the book about. My last book, Potential Principle. Uh, is really a synthesis of what I've developed over 33 years about how to keep getting better. Uh, it's my work with, you know, some 26, 2700 clients and my, my personal uh, plan. And, and now I just, we haven't released it yet, but it's, it exists. I just designed a, a journal uh, called the Extraordinary Living Journal. Uh, and again, it's just based on, I couldn't have, I couldn't have uh, written one 30 years ago. If I had, it would have been pretty, pretty lame. And I hope this is good because it's kind of field tested over all this time. So the answer is mostly 
uh, it's been by design because I'm ADD and I love uh, different subjects and different topics. It really is interesting, though, when you get in that leadership bracket, we were talking a little bit before we went on air about the listeners of this. It's really people from all walks of life and leadership, whether it's on a professional sports team or the CEO of a large company or the manager of a mom and pop store in a downtown hometown somewhere in America, leadership is pretty universal as it goes across. What do you see are the greatest holes as you go out and you work with clients and you work with great businesses and companies? Do you see some gaps that are pretty universal in all of those? Well, first, Mike, I got to agree. Truth is transferable. Uh, what's you know true at home is true at work. What's true at work is true in the community. The, the application changes. You know, context is obviously different. But I've always tried to make my work principle based, and and by that I mean it. A principle to me passes three tests. It's true across time. Uh, it's true across culture, and it's true across uh, circumstance. In other words, it's not just there. There are some things that are kind of U.S. centric, you know, there are some things that are maybe European centric, but increasingly in our global, you know, economy, that's kind of evened out. So you're always looking, you know, and I've worked in the Middle East and Europe, you're always looking for principles that apply as much to them as to us. I, I want to make sure that I'm not talking about something that was true in 2018, but in 10 years, we're going, ha, that was, that was silly. And yeah. I've, I've caught a few things. I mean, I've updated my work, just things that at the time I believe were true and I've come to a different conclusion. And, and then uh, by true across context, I mean, it would work whether you're an engineer in, in petroleum or you're a, uh, a CEO of a startup company. So having said that, I, I do see uh, some really important gaps and I speak to them. The first being that, Learning how to lead without a really compelling reason to lead isn't a great idea. You know, I'm contacted frequently by uh, college students that want to learn how to lead because they know that it will prepare them for their, you know, job. It will be good on their resume, et cetera. And I'll say, you know, that's great. And I agree, except that if you don't have a compelling reason to lead, if you don't have something that really powers you that is purposeful mm. the first time you hit a speed bump the first time you get a negative review the first time a parishioner flames you on yelp uh you're going to be demoralized and be tempted to give up so i think the reason why needs to precede the what and the how mm. uh you know i'll say if you really want to get started in leadership pick something that really annoys you that's always bothered you about the condo association where you live or the 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 company where you work or how a customer is treated and make that your initiative. You know, whether you are officially anointed or appointed, just say, I'm going to make that better. You know, my book, you don't need a title to be a leader. I, I make this really broad definition of leadership and that is leaders are people that make things better, but they don't just make things better for themselves. If you make something better for yourself, that's ambition. Mm. Don't mm. ever confuse leadership with ambition. I got nothing against ambition. Ambition is fine as long as it's moral and ethical and legal. But leaders always make things better for themselves and others. And I think that's key. You know, number one, you've got to be purposeful. You've got to have a reason why. Number two, you need to know that personal gain is not the primary driver of leadership. It's about making things better for others. Number three is if you do not increase your capacity, you will diminish your effectiveness. 
Uh, Mike, I'm sure you see this. Leaders that start out well, they get overwhelmed. So instead of working eight hours, they work nine. And then they have to work nine and a half. And then they have to work 10. And then they're calling their spouse and saying they won't be home until after dinner. The reason for that is you can only increase your input before you run out. Yep. Capacity is the ability to accomplish more in the same amount of time. And if there's something that I made a high priority in my business, that was learning how to increase my capacity without just working longer and longer hours. When I first started in the business, I was a single guy. And so, you know, I'd work all day and all night, have a hoot. Nobody cared. Nobody, frankly, nobody noticed. Uh, and then, you know, at the age of 37, I got married. At the age of 39, I became a father. And if I hadn't learned how to grow my business without working more hours, actually, I had to work less hours because I wanted to be there for the birth of my kids and important occasions. If I hadn't learned to do that, I would have met an, a bad end, uh, yep. relationally, familially, health-wise. So I really think if you're a leader, and there are a lot of them that just find themselves working more and more and more, the primary reason is you haven't increased your capacity. The secondary reason is you're not working through others. Mm. A lot. I've seen some leaders that everybody thought was were effective. They weren't effective leaders. They were just so productive that people confused the output of their department with the output of the leader. People in their department were running on, on, you know, half speed, just kind of looking for things to do during the day. Leadership always gets bigger results through other people. And if you don't delegate, uh, if you don't have a team, whether it's a, I work with a virtual team. I have a, a full-time team member here in my office. I have uh, one on the East coast. I have several part-time people if you don't work through others, uh, you'll be stuck again with, first of all, working too many hours, and secondly, doing stuff that you aren't good at doing. I, I don't. There are certain things I can do, but I don't do them well, and I don't like to do them. And those are the things that I try to uh, to delegate to people who do them well and who like to do them. And that takes humility, and that's and that's part of that wisdom that you get as a leader to go. I don't have to be good at it if they're really good at it and it's okay. It's okay. If they do it and they get the credit for it, you, you know, and I've heard you talk a lot about your faith. I've heard you talk a lot about through the years, you know, your faith is a big, I mean, you, you got on the free preaching circuit as a young kid and then you, 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 you've used your faith. How does your faith Mark influence your leadership and how you view leadership? Well, I grew up in a pretty, legalistic environment. And I certainly understood the gospel. I was lucky, lucky uh, birth club. My parents were both strong believers. My dad was a man of faith. My mother was a woman of faith. But, you know, early on, like a lot of people, uh, even though I understood uh, the, the gospel, I pretty much thought it was about keeping the rules and doing certain things and, you know, not doing certain things. Yeah. And it it, you know, theologically, I think I was a, a solid believer, but I wasn't a particularly effective or happy believer. And then what I did, again, without boring people, because frankly, uh, the only benefit of sharing this story is I think other people will recognize this in their lives. You know, I kind of walked away. When I went to college, I found out nobody paid attention. If I came home or didn't come home, nobody noticed. Neighbors didn't call my mom and say, I heard Mark's car coming, you know, down the road at 1153 last yep. night. And that literally happens in a rural community. Everybody kind of watches out, which is kind of cool, frankly. It is. It you know, is. Because people are invested in, in each other. 
But in college, I just pretty much did the prodigal son thing. And, um, and frankly, you know, uh, since I'd grown up in a legalistic environment, it was probably far more exciting uh, for me to do things that a lot of kids had done in, in high school. And then after I got out of college, I uh, started my first job, moved to Denver, heard uh, someone we had talked about before we started the podcast, Jim Dixon, preach. And he talked about I'd, went, I'd gone to church because I was at the point where I knew going to church was an important part of my community involvement. You know, it was something you did, yep. you know, an upstanding member of the community. And basically, Jim preached a sermon that, you know, when Jesus was alive, they wanted him to be uh, their Lord, but not their Savior. You know, they needed a king, but they didn't need somebody to really... Uh, you know, uh, save them and 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 uh, and build into their lives. And I thought, well, that's me. You know, I want the the fruits and the benefits of being a good, upstanding young man, as long as I don't have to do anything differently, act or believe differently. And I reread Mere Christianity, mm. which uh, when I first read it made no sense. I thought it was a gobbledygook. And uh, you know, I was at a different point in my spiritual faith, and I recommitted my life. And that's the that's the long story. I've gone through some very deep periods uh, of, of doubt in, in the uh, last, you know, 25, 30, 30 years. And one of the things that I like to tell people is, you know, God loves us enough to allow us to doubt. You know, a That's God right. that wouldn't allow you to doubt without, you know, throwing you under the bus isn't much of a God. Uh, and, uh, you know, as I've studied strong believers like Mother Teresa, who after she died, I think she had a period of, uh, and there's a word for it. I think it's acacia. Maybe you know, Mike. But uh, she went through this period where she did not feel the presence of God. Wow. Didn't know if she, she didn't know if God existed. But you know, she did. She kept ministering to others, and and uh, I think that that's that's what we do. Is is I think the greatest the greatest uh, danger for a believer is that we go into a period of doubt, and then that leads to isolation. Because I think it's it's being in some kind of community. I don't know, you know, whether it's a group of guys going to church, a Bible study. If you isolate, you come up with your own conclusions. And frankly, most of my own conclusions have not served me well. <laughs> so um, I'm the first guy to admit that uh, there have been times I doubt. I, I you know, having come out of a, an environment where you believed it because you felt it, I, I believe it because I think intellectually it makes sense as well as emotionally. So I've had a very strange, quote Jerry Garcia talking about my faith, what a long, strange uh, trip it's been uh, for me. Uh, but uh, I readily admit that, uh, but I'm not in control. I, you can't, I'm 60 years old. You can't live to be 60 and think you're in control. You're delusional. There are things you control, yep. but you're not in control. The good news is I believe things aren't out of control. That's a good, a good way to, uh, to kind of express my, my faith, my politics, uh, my behavior is even though I may not be in control, I do think that there is someone who's in control and doing far better than I would. I love that. And I, I love you're open enough to admit that because everybody has the doubts, not everybody's man enough or woman enough to tell them, but I love that. I love in the gospels, you know, John told us all the, if we wrote down all the things that he did, gosh, there's not enough books in the world to hold them. But one of the stories that got left was Thomas and Jesus saying, Thomas, take a look. He didn't, he didn't get on Thomas. He didn't ride him. He told him to just come take a look because he can handle our doubts. And I think so many times as a leader, we feel like, well, I don't have enough spiritual answers and I don't really, I don't know enough. But yet, man, when you live out that faith, it does influence it does influence everything about you. You made a comment back in 2009 
it was really interesting. And you said something that I thought was spot on. You said, if you notice somebody, if you are in life and you see somebody and you notice them, I'm looking for the exact quote right here. Um, to know more, you notice more. And when you really want to befriend and get to know people in your organization, to me, that's one of those universal things that when you love people, which I believe comes from the Lord, why is that still true in 2018, 2019, that when you genuinely know and notice people, it's universally loved? Why is that still true? Well, I think that goes back to a principle. And again, as a person of faith, I think that's a part of our design. I mean, uh, you know, people have two primary needs to be noticed and to be known. Yep. And that's why, you know, I'm always reminded of the, the tragedy of homelessness because uh, homeless people uh, feel invisible, many of them. Mm-hmm. If you ever uh, pay much attention or try to engage them, they've gone into a kind of isolation where they kind of move through life thinking they're invisible because in a way they are. And because they're invisible and not known by anyone, they have a high percentage of people would say people become homeless because of mental illness. I think that the corollary is true that homelessness also is a precondition to mental illness Mm -hmm. because of that isolation. But, you know, my my friend Jim Cathcart uh, coined that phrase to, to know more, notice more. But I really applied it not just to the world around us, but to people. And it's, it's, again, it's easy to skitter along the surface. It's messy when you get to know people. Yep. And occasionally when you do a deep dive with people, you get scorched, you know, yep. uh, you know, my, my, uh, wife went through a situation where she invested heavily, uh, out of the goodness of her heart and, and, uh, it did not end well. And, and, uh, there was a lot of pain and a lot of, uh, of sadness, but for her and for me, because I love her. And you got to just be careful, though, that you don't let that bring you to the point of ultimate cynicism where you say, you know what, that's it. I'm not going to get to know anybody. Nobody's going to know me. I'm going to stick to my close circle of friends. You need boundaries. You know, Mm. read Cloud and Townsend's book on boundaries. (laughs) I'm not the guy to talk about boundaries, (laughs) but luckily uh, they wrote a book that's a classic. But you do have to to know and notice people. And again, because I'm a left brain guy, I have to be consciously... I have to apply conscious effort to do that. I'm just fascinated with ideas. You know, some people are fascinated with people. Some people are fascinated with ideas. I try to be fascinated by both. But left to my own devices, put me in a room with a stack of books and an internet connection, and I'm good for days. How about that? How about that? So here you are, 60 years old, built an unbelievable career, inspired thousands of people across the country, not only through your books, but on platforms. What do you think was the purpose God put you on this earth for? As you as you look back now, and you mentioned it a second ago in that rearview mirror, and you see how a lot of this has played out, why do you think God created you like he created you? And what, what in, in the best you can tell, what's a success in God's eyes for Mark Sanborn? Why did he create you? Wow, that's that's a that's a deep one. You know, that's the old theology uh, exam. Define God. Give examples. <laughs> <laughs> well, you I can't mess it up. That, that's the great part. I would say that you know, at a simple level, it's to encourage and educate people. You know, obviously, the greatest encouragement we give is through example. But most people don't get to experience our example outside our circle of close friends and family. 
So for me, it's been about words. Uh, I love words. I love ideas. And I think that in 2004, when I wrote The Fred Factor, uh, Tom Peters picked one of my quotes from The Fred Factor as one of his favorites for the year. I was very flattered. And that was the quote, nobody can prevent you from choosing to be exceptional. Mm. Well, I wrote then six more books and I suddenly realized at some point in the process that even though the books were on different topics, change and leadership and performance and learning, that there was this underlying theme that went back to the Fred factor. And I, I tweaked it a little bit. And I think the underlying message of my work is that nobody can prevent you from choosing to be extraordinary. You might not have been taught how, you might not have been encouraged. And frankly, a lot of kids are discouraged. They grow up in broken homes where any attempt to be extraordinary is criticized or, or put down, or they get to the workforce with a natural enthusiasm to do a good job and coworkers say, hey, knock it off, you're making me look bad. And so this idea that you choose, not by birth, not by circumstance, but by choice, you say, you know what? I'm going to be exceptional and extraordinary, maybe in spite of my, my limitations, in spite of my family of origin, in spite of where I work. And the reason why that, and, and that's what I talk about to corporate America. How can you be a, a more extraordinary leader? How can you turn ordinary into extraordinary? But, but biblically, Jesus said, I came. Why? To have, that you might have life to the full. That's right. That's extraordinary. If you're living life to the full, that to me is extraordinary. Now, uh, I'm not putting words in Jesus's mouth, but it seems to me that, uh, you know, the uh, Irenaeus uh, said 2,000 years ago, uh, the glory of God is a man or woman fully alive. Mm. And again, I, I see that idea here, life to the full, being fully alive. So many people today, and, and we, we've all been guilty of it, we sleepwalk through life. I hate the phrase well, I'm just killing time. Goodness, you know, you don't, maybe because I'm 60 and not 16, I don't like that phrase as much anymore. Or, or people, when my boys were little, they're 18 and 21 now, they had all this technology and TVs and computers, and they'd say, I'm bored. And I said, son, that's a choice, not a condition. Mm. We all get bored, but there is no reason to be bored except you chose to be bored. Um, G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite uh, uh, philosophers and a great Catholic uh, apologist, uh, even though I'm not Catholic, I love G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> in, in some fundamental circles, that would make me a pagan right there, the fact that I read a, a Catholic apologist. But G.K. Chesterton said, the world will never lack for wonders, only wonder. Think about that. You may not have the one, the, you may lose your sense of wonder, but the world hasn't lost its wonders. You've just lost your sense of wonder. And that puts the onus on me to stay engaged and alive. You know, uh, nobody can do that for you. I, I, boy, I tell you, I'm, I know I'm really on a roll. I must have a lot of caffeine, but I'm always flattered when someone comes up to me and says, Mark, your book changed your life or your speech changed your life. And that's very, very kind of them to say, but I always say, Thank you, but no, my book didn't change your life, and my speech didn't change your life. I can't change your life. Only you can change your life. I couldn't get my boys to take out the garbage for 18 years. What are the odds that I have the power to change your life? And I know people are well-intentioned, and I'm not being negative in any way. I'm just putting the responsibility where the responsibility deserves to be. I'm the person that said, hey, I took that idea out of your book, and I used it. Or I listened to you say that, and it reminded me. Um, 
I, I just have such a pet peeve when I get these crazy emails about, you know, I'm just from speakers. I'm just out there changing lives. No, you're yeah. not. You're not God. God can change a life. You and I can be uh, encouragers and educators, but ultimately <laughs> it's people that change their lives, whether they do that with a, uh, a collaborative effort with God or they do it on their own. Yep. Final question. Is it ever too late for somebody to want to be extraordinary? Is there a point? Is there an age? Is there a place? Is there a time where where they've missed their opportunity? Or is that something, if somebody makes the choice to say at 45, at 35, at 55 to go, I want to make this season of my life extraordinary and live for the wonder that's really out there. Is it ever too late to do that? I don't think it's ever too late. I think that the older you get, how you choose to be uh, extraordinary may change. I think that uh, our culture doesn't always do a good job of respecting and acknowledging the wisdom of elders. Uh, I think that the older you are, the more you have to offer younger people. I think the younger you are, I, I was blessed. I, I've always had friends that were 10 to 20 years older than me, and I learned so much from them. And I have worked so hard to be a blessing to them because they were a blessing to me. It wasn't a friendship based on I'm going to be your friend so I can learn from you. These were people who genuinely liked me and I genuinely liked them. But it didn't stop there. You know, they built into my life and some of the greatest uh gratification I have experienced is just encountering somebody that I was able to share an idea or, or mentor. I've never been big on, you know, formal mentoring where some stranger calls me and I put them in a course and we talk every Friday at two, but I have spent a lot of time with a lot of speakers, a lot of leaders. And, you know, I call that leverageable impact. If I impact mm -hmm. one person, uh, then they impact one person. And if I impact a hundred people and each of them impact one person, I've just impacted a hundred times one and a hundred times a hundred. I mean, well, I just really goofed the math up, but you get my point. That didn't come out nearly as clever as I thought it would. <laughs> hey, listen, the is, a terrible math person that I am. I was going right with you. I had no <laughs> idea. I'm like, yeah, I'm with you. Sure, um, yeah. One times one is one. Okay. Yeah, that's very leverageable. Yeah, and that's why I struggle with income tax too. That's going to be a that's exactly that's exactly so right. It's never too late. You know what I think? George Eliot said, "It's never too late to become the person uh, you dreamed of being." That's exactly right. The problem is, many of us have never dreamed of being anyone other than who we are. And I think God wants us to have a bigger, bigger vision of ourselves. I think God wants us to have a bigger vision of the people in our lives, and I think God wants us to have a bigger vision of, of His kingdom. That was good stuff, wasn't it? Man, you get guys like Mark. We've never met. Truly, I followed him on Twitter for years, read some of his books. But getting to spend that time with him was, was probably more than I expected it to be. The kindness, the humility, the, the willingness to help others be their very best, you can tell is at the core of who he is. And I am so thankful for leaders in this world like Mark Sanborn, people that have been given an incredible intellect and incredible wisdom, but they don't keep it to themselves. They share it with everyone. If today's episode was helpful to you, I hope you'll push pause, go to iTunes, leave a review, uh, do a star rating for us. That does help other leaders like you that may not know about the podcast find their way to us and help them be their very best. 
So I hope you have enjoyed today. Well, as we wrap up 2019, I pray that this podcast has added value to you and your family and your team that you work with. But we're not stopping in 2019. In fact, we're going to set off 2020 with uh, maybe one of our best guests yet. A few months ago, I was able to sit down with the world-renowned business guru, Mr. Ken Blanchard, and not only talk about his books that have been bestsellers, not only talk about the tips that he's given us that we all use from the One Minute Manager, but talk about his faith and talk about the role that Jesus has played in his life. It is going to be a blast. It'll be our very first episode of 2020. Thanks again for joining us. Look forward to hearing from you, seeing you, and connecting with you again in the new year. I pray that 2019 was great, but I pray that 2020 will be even better. Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.